This is the Intuitive Leadership Mastery Podcast. What would it take for you to double your profits and half your stress with your intuition? Learn how with your host, Michael Light. Welcome back to the show. I'm here with Jordan Greenhall, 20-year entrepreneur, victor in many successes in business, crashes when it didn't work out because he didn't perceive what was happening in the world. And we're going to have an amazing conversation about how you can perceive what's really going on at a much deeper level than you're used to. And uh, Jordan wrote an article that went viral called Situation Assessment, and I've linked that in the show notes. And I really recommend reading it and digesting it. It, it might take a few goes to digest it because there's so much deep information in there. And we're going to talk about Jordan's creative process and how he uses intu- his intuition, but how he also uses his rational mind to make that more effective. And also, we're going to look about if you're competing with other businesses, how do you get in their OODA loop, what that is and why it's important. Uh, and we're also going to look at memes and why those matter in your business. And if you aren't using memes in your business, you are not going to win in business in this century. Uh, we're also going to look at why fighting the last war is a mistake in your business. And also that there are some culture wars going on now that could totally change the whole business environment and affect what you need to do to succeed right now. So welcome, Jordan. Yeah, thank you, Michael. That's a lot of stuff we're going to talk about. Well, we'll do our best. And, uh, you know, what would it take to cover all those things in depth? As I said earlier, we're going to take people from the shallow end of the swimming pool. We, we are going to go down to the deeper end of the swimming pool. We are going to hope that none of the listeners drown at the deeper end. But, you know, there are some show note lifeboat belts there to save them if they, uh, you know, get a little lost. But I like to take people deep. So let's do that. Great. It's going to be fun. Um, so you have some really creative ideas, but how on earth do you come up with these amazing concepts that you, you have? Um, you mentioned the notion of, like, of being able to talk about the intuitive method and the, the analytical or the rational method, and I, I, I use both. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, I, was, I was raised and trained in the analytical and mathematical uh, mathematical rational method, but I'm fundamentally uh, intuitive, and it's only been in the past decade or so that I've really been able to hone and uh, honor the intuitive channel. Uh, and so, what ends up happening for me is there's a, a constant back and forth of trying to figure out different ways and techniques to allow the intuitive to speak, uh, to be heard, uh, to emerge in the way that it does. As you know, it's it's, it's not a it's never obvious, it's never straightforward, but then when it does, to really be able to sort of feel into what is actually happening, and then what I do is I close it with a set of principles and concepts that I, that I am constantly gathering and refining uh, through the rational channel. Um, and I should mention, by the way, this notion of principles and concepts I think is particularly useful because a principle is at a high enough level uh, of generality that you can then use it to make sense of something that is coming from the intuitive channel. Uh, I mean, maybe we can talk about that in more concretion a little bit, but that's, uh, that's how I do it. And I find, by the way, that one of the best ways for me to, to, to suss out the things that are happening intuitively is in dialogue, that just having a conversation with somebody will just begin to bring things up, um, and it, it will surface in, a, in, 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 in almost a, a, a synchronicity 
uh, a serendipity in the dialogue. And then I'm like, okay, there it is. That's the thing that I, that was, I was trying to make sense of, that just somehow sharing in words with another consciousness helps clarify these things. So that might be talking with another business friend about the ideas you're getting from your intuition. It might be writing it down in an article and sharing it out with people. could be making a video and sharing it. Many different ways to yes. share and get feedback and get greater clarity. And just by the act of having to share what's come to you, I think for me, it helps clarify the ideas in my own head. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's, it, you're right. Even creating a video with the intention of sharing it. Like if you would create a video without the intention of sharing it, I don't think it works. But if even if you don't actually get it broadly shared and very little feedback, the intention of sharing it just requires a level of, of uh, a demeanor and attitude and a level of discipline that helps clarify those, those more subtle elements. So this is both a practical strategy, but it also comes back to, you know, we want to hear these messages and we get from our intuition to improve our business. And by taking action, you know, whether it's going to have a conversation or making a video or whatever, it, it somehow makes the intuition pay attention more and give us even more information. Whereas if we do nothing and just sit on it, it seems the intuition almost shuts down and, and stops giving us the information so much. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I, I even just extend that, that you know, in the case of this article that you mentioned, um, you also get the benefit of the larger collective intuition or the act, the feelings of, of a lot of other people can then actually help point you in areas where your intuition may be screaming at you, but you then get the signal back. So I, I, when I wrote this article, I had no sense or intent of more than a couple of hundred people reading it, maybe a thousand at the outside. Um, but instead, it, it went viral. A uh, hundred thousand people or more uh, have read it. And as a consequence, one, that told me that there was something there that was more intense than I had anticipated, but also then flowed a lot more energy and attention back at me, which changes the state of what I can do in the world. I love that. And you mentioned uh, someone, um, Ms. Roy, I'm not quite getting her first name, who's talked about what reality really is and how, how this applies mm -hmm. to sharing new ideas we get from our intuition. Can you tell us a little about that and what that concept is? Sure. So her name is Benita, uh, like little Bonnie, Benita Roy. And uh, she has been thinking about deep metaphysical questions very powerfully for a while. And the way she described it to me is that uh, it is better to think about reality as a continuum from the infinitesimal, the really, really not very much real, all the way to the infinite, that which is quite significantly real. Um, and the continuum is measured by the degree to which something is shared. So in your own sense, there are going to be things that you will intuitively feel, but they're very vague and very distant. And you could just barely even hold on to them for a few moments. And so those are things that are not very real. In the act of just you're being able to tune more clearly into them and, and kind of play with them and start to sort of get a better sense of what is trying to show itself, that is an internal intuitive process of realizing that, which is to say literally making it more real. And then what ends up happening is that as you build techniques to be able to share that more broadly, like the moment where you can share it outside of yourself with another consciousness, that's a massive increase in the realization of that thing. And then if it becomes shared even more broadly, like say in the case of this article where 100,000 consciousnesses are now beginning to act on it, uh, it's a significant realization of it. And then you can kind of go further and further and further. Now that's great philosophically, but let's apply that to business. If you've got 
a marketing idea or a product or service and you're positioning it a certain way, if you're the only person in the world who gets your product, no one's going to buy it. But if you can get <laughs> thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to get the idea, like, why is an iPhone the thing to get, right? Because an iPhone is just a phone and a computer, right? But really, it has a whole bunch of belief systems about why you should get an iPhone and not an Android that get people to take action. And that changes the reality. So it's not just Steve Jobs thinking, oh, yeah, iPhones are cool. He's managed to convince millions of people iPhones are cool. They're useful. I've got to have one. And that is a genius trick to pull. And right. that's well, how do. reality makes profits. And what I'd like to do is actually take advantage of one of the other topics that we want to talk about, which is the nature of different kinds of, of technology frameworks and maybe the notion of memes and do them all at once. Because now you mentioned that not. word meme, that's spelled M-E-M-E. It's sort of like gene. And this is critical yeah. for modern business. So tell us what a meme is and why it matters. Okay, so a meme is conventionally thought of as being a, uh, an idea uh, or an artifact. I'll actually very specifically call it a, a piece, a shareable piece of culture. So it might be a song. It might be a, an image. It might be a, uh, you know, a, a GIF, an, a, an animated GIF, but it's a shareable piece of culture uh, is a meme. Um, by the way, a scientist named Richard Dawkins is the person who actually conceptualized the idea, and he was trying to specifically talk about what is the, the intellectual or, or idea equivalent of, of genes, um, ideas having sex, are memes. So basically it's an idea in someone's head or a thought in someone's head that then gets replicated to other people's heads. So it might be a popular song that they're singing, and then it goes in your head and you keep singing and singing it, and you share it with other people. Or it might be the meme that iPhones are cool and you need to get one. Or it might well, be the... I, I should, it might be the, the way that somebody holds a cigarette in their hand and sucks in the smoke and blows it out. And it might be a, a, a cultural artifact in the shape of behavior. Or it might be a particular color of car that is cool this year. And so it's, it's actually a little bit more abstract than just something that can be expressed semantically. It is the, the stuff that we humans observe in our environment that we then use to change our behavior in relationship to other humans, including ourselves. So it, if, if we think of humans as, as having these things in their heads that cause them to behave differently, and let's call that software just for the purpose of this, the memes are kind of like the pieces of the software that get passed around between the humans um, and cause them to behave differently. And why is that important in business? Well, I think the, the way of thinking about memes um, and being able to have access to the frame of, of shareability and genetics is particularly helpful right now uh, because effectively none of us are Apple. Um, and but what I mean by that is uh, if you think the way you're going to go get your ideas out in the world is that you're going to uh, buy a Super Bowl ad um, and get a lot of attention in that fashion, you're probably wrong. Uh, but in a contemporary environment of social media, the power of a Super Bowl ad is catastrophically declining. And the real way to go about getting people to care about and engage with what you're doing is in the fine art of memetics, which is to find ways to craft and shape the, uh, the essence, the importance, the value, the sense and value of the thing that you want to have shared in a fashion that 
even a very small group of people, and hopefully over time a much larger group of people, connect with. And for the reasons of their own, decide that they want to share it, and even better, to add value to it and share it. Then you've got something very powerful. So and the I, beauty of that is it's free. Wow. So this is free promotion for your business idea or the mission you have for your tribe or, or whatever it change you're trying to achieve in the world, whether it's making profit or getting people to change their behavior, which usually the two go yeah. together. And right. And the old-fashioned marketers used to call it word of mouth. That's a uh, uh, sort of a very um, cardboard way of talking about what we're talking about. Right, but marketing's moved beyond word of mouth. You know, now we have all kinds of, you know, different advertisements, different copy, you know, content marketing, press, you know, PR manipulation. Um, yep. You know, the dark arts of copywriting. But this memetics is is an actual scientific theory of why this works and how it works. Is that right? That's correct. So it combines... So, for example, the dark arts of copywriting, you can either get there through trial and error. You could just learn it through this sheer practicality of trying to see what works and what doesn't work. Or uh, you can tap into the various disciplines of cognitive science, psychology, neuroscience, human motivation, and understand why those things work. And, of course, if you can jump to the end and get a much firmer grasp on why certain kinds of ideas are grasped and shared with certain kinds of energy and motivation – then you're able to, to leap way ahead of the game. So that lets you, you know, I think we've all experienced this. Sometimes we, we want to get our, our product out into the market and there's traction and everyone wants to share it and use it. And other times it seems like we're, we're pushing a noodle from the wrong direction and nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. And this helps explain yeah. the difference. Indeed. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, one of the key ideas, one of the key motifs is, um, you know, the world wants to hear what the world wants to hear, and that's going to change based upon the state of the world. Uh, so, for example, if I had written my article a year ago, I probably would have gotten about a thousand people to read it. But in uh, as of November 2016, this particular kind of idea and this particular framing of that idea, so both the way it's being told and the thing that it's talking about, suddenly has a whole lot of attention that's ready to interact with it. And that, of course, is crucial. Timing matters. Um, I don't know how many times and how many different kinds of businesses you've been involved in, but the degree to which timing matters is actually becoming more and more and more because our ability to force the universe, force the world to listen to us is decreasing. So, you know, and that's, that's coming back to that phrase, the zeitgeist, you know, what's happening in society and, uh, you know, what is the right time? And how can you tell what the right time is? Does intuition help with that at all or...? Well, I think important fact, intuition is the only thing that could really help because quite often the things that change in the zeitgeist are things that we can't actually make any sense of. You know, that's that's the, the idea of the zeitgeist, or the, the geist part of zeit. Um, it's just happening at a level where our conscious, semantic, rational mind, by the time we've made sense of it, it's already too late. Uh, and I'll kind of give you an example. Um, I actually had a business. It was a public company in the... 2006, 2007 timeframe, and I began to notice a number of conversations happening among people in the financial world, bankers, that were troubling, but I didn't have any expertise. My, my rational mind didn't understand finance. I didn't understand the languages like inverting yield curve that they were using, but my intuitive mind uh, and my body were noticing that they were very nervous, 
And if I had just been able to be more effectively tuned into that and started being able to say, hey, something clearly important is happening here, what might that impact might that have on my business? I would have been able to be more effectively prepared for the financial crisis that they were aware of, or at least they were themselves intuitively aware of, uh, which, of course, made a massive difference in my business and everybody else's business. Oh, yeah. I mean, fortunes were made and lost in that crisis. So if you were able to pick right. up the and timing on that, you, you'd have done great or protected yourself from total it, wipeout. And the key is it's in the, uh, it's in the water, it's in the air. You, you'll be tuning into it at the intuitive level. It's happening right now. You know, everybody is feeling like something is going on, uh, but we can't name it yet. Uh, and so the process of being able to allow those feelings to point you at least, you know, give you, uh, just allow yourself to allocate your attention to the things that your intuitions are pointing yourself towards and not try to hold too tightly because the thing that holds tightly is the thing that's becoming obsolete. I love that. If you're holding on too tightly to some business model or way of doing things or you're used to making money through print ads in newspapers and then social media comes along and you don't do anything, you know, you're going to have problems in your business. Yeah, you'll be, you, you will be dead in, a, in some time. So people who want to learn more about memes, uh, I'm going to suggest uh, a book called The Meme Machine by Susan Blackwell as a, a good introduction to that. Uh, you got any other sure. resources you think are good? Or <laughs> I'm afraid that is not an area of my expertise. Almost every idea I have is bespoke um, or stolen, but I don't have a, a whole – I don't read a lot of, of, uh, uh, sort of business-oriented books. Well, I guess you're a good meme, meme replicator then. <laughs> I am. And that's a great skill to have. The person who spreads the meme is the person who gets rewarded, not necessarily the person who invents the meme. Mm. It's actually the, the, the second or third upregulator is the one who seems to get most of the attention right now. But that may be just the nature of the environment that we're in. Certainly the person who invents the meme rarely gets the reward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we talked earlier that you know, if you're fighting the last war in your business, if you're using old technology when there's a phase shift in technology, that, you know, you're not going to win. Tell us a bit mm -hmm. more about that and, and how the, the phrase, the medium is the message, is actually a really important business concept. All right. Wow. Okay. So that's very powerful. So um, it behooves us to take a little bit of time to get it right. This is actually, in my experience, shockingly uncommon. The uh, health and very deep. So the metaphor of fighting the lost war, uh, for anybody for whom that makes any sense, I think is quite useful because we've seen it happen over and over again. So we can just use the classic example of the Maginot Line in World War II. Um, so the Civil, uh, Civil the First World War was a big deal, and people worked really, really hard to figure out how to be very effective at winning the First World War. And so techniques, technologies, processes, methodologies, concepts, and frameworks went through a very rapid uh, iteration process at the at the actual edge, right? Because getting it wrong killed you, um, and they got good at it. Right? So then they became experts at fighting World War One. And so what they did is they 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 formalized that knowledge in for the French, particular in this thing called the Maginot Line, which is the the best trench ever made. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, and it was more than the trench. Just so people know, they spent billions oh, of yeah. dollars building this Maginot line, and it was supposed to be the right impregnable Star Wars of the 1930s that would stop the Germans ever invading ever again. 
Exactly. It was, it was the categorical answer to the problem of trench warfare. But unfortunately, what the Germans did is they just obsoleted trench warfare completely. And a number of different technical innovations were part of that obsolescence of the old approach. The, invent, the invention of the, of the aircraft as a tactical weapon, the invention of armored warfare and the speed at which gasoline-powered tanks could run, and the invention of radio and the ability for tactical troops to be able to communicate fluidly and change their st- the, where they were going and their coordination without having to be next to each other. Right? That, those three in particular changed the state of the game. It was a different game. And so what ended up happening is that the, the French had become exceptionally good at winning a game that the Germans weren't even playing. And the Germans were playing a new game entirely, which completely obsoleted the old game. Now, this sort of thing happens all the time. And the, the Marshall McLuhan, who is a Canadian uh, philosopher, uh, had this phrase called the medium is the message. And what he means by that is that when you've got something like, let's say, television, which is best understood as the idea of, of broadcast audiovisual medium, broadcast meaning one person creates a, uh, a broadcast. We don't all have TV broadcast towers. There's a couple of them, two or three, and it conveys Audiovisual information so it doesn't convey smell or texture, just those pieces. Um, once you have that as the form of medium that you're using, then a whole bunch of kinds of things are, go- are going to be given an opportunity to spread. A bunch of kinds of means are suddenly going to be flourishing, kind of like uh, you know the jungle. So all, all sorts of things that flourish in the jungle and don't flourish in the desert. The television is a, is a, a niche for a whole bunch of different kinds of, of, of means. But then when you shift, you shift the technical framework from broadcast audiovisual to interactive digital, right, which is what now the Internet and the, the, all the different sort of children of the Internet, like mobile Internet, have created. This doesn't just um, mean that uh, it's, not, it's not a linear, a simple transition, like from black and white television to color television, it's a simple transition. From broadcast audiovisual to interactive digital is, a, is equivalent to a shift from the jungle to the desert and a whole different ecosystem is going to be selected for. And if you're the kind of plant that requires a lot of rainfall, like the jungle plant, and you're moving into the, into the, into the Internet, into the desert, you're going to die. Um, on the other hand, if you're exceptionally good at thriving and surviving in the nature of the medium that you're in, then you will naturally thrive. And so being able to tune into that, which, by the way, that kind of transition, again, is the sort of thing that the, the rational, conceptual mind just can't grasp because the concepts that we build are actually based upon the medium in which those concepts are generated. Only the intuitive channel realistically can actually begin to have some sense of tuning into what this transitionary threshold looks like. And then, of course, the rational mind comes back behind it and begins to iterate and experiment and learn. Now, I want to make some, I think that is an incredible concept and it applies to business because these shifts in not just technology, but also organizational and societal shifts, because one of the shifts the German army made that helped them win the Blitzkrieg uh, in, you know, against France at the beginning of the Second World War was they had a different organization. They empowered lower level officers to make decisions on the fly in the field without having to go all the way up the hierarchy. So it wasn't it. There were technological things but there were also organizational shifts and that applies to business too and lets some businesses win and others lose because they have identified the new environment the new technology the new organizational ways of of dealing with things and they are leveraging that 
and their opponents are fighting the last war and they don't have a chance, you know? This is quite exactly right. Um, and here's the other thing that as we go swimming out deeper into the swimming pool, the deeper water, these changes in our society with technological changes and organizational changes and belief changes, they're not like happening on a, you know, click, click every 10 years, there's a change. They're happening faster and faster. Right. So you can't, you know, just sit there and, and say, oh, well, we've made the change for this decade. We don't need to change our business anymore. Those changes are happening every six months now, and then it's going to be every four months, and then it'll be every month. Yes, this is, um, I mean, it's an entire discipline in the Silicon Valley, you know, the, the folks who have so far been the most successful at doing this, um, specifically trying to figure out how does one deal with accelerating change. Um, because during the, the 19th century and most of the 20th century, the slope of the curve of accelerating change was far enough apart that we could largely pretend the change was happening in a sort of decade-long cycle. So we could you know, pretend that that was the case. But as you say, now that the slope of the curve is getting uh, steeper and steeper relative to our, uh, our agency, you know, when change is happening in six-month cycles, we really have to begin formalizing entirely, uh, entire approaches around what accelerating change itself actually means. And to me, this is one of the key reasons why we need to use our intuitive mind along with our rational mind in business because the rational mind is great at dealing with changes that only happen every 10 years you know you only have to rebuild your factory every 10 years that is not true anymore you've got to rebuild your processes every six months every month it's always changing and the only way you can tell is by pulling in your intuitive thoughts as well as your rational thoughts and yeah this is absolutely correct i mean we might even go a little bit further and talk about the fact that you have to begin building your organizational framework around that sense of intuitive sensibility. I think that you know, is you, really important. It's not just that someone in a, the, quote, strategy department of your startup or your enterprise needs to pay attention to this. Everyone in the organization needs to be aware of this. And I think just like how the German army empowered lower level troops to make decisions on the battlefield, when you're in business, you can't have like just the strategy department figure this out. You know, you can't have the strategy department in in Kodak, you know, business, which was a, <laughs> you know, a Fortune 100 business that went out of business because their strategy department sort of knew digital photography was coming along. But yeah. the individual people working in it weren't empowered to do anything about it. And they went out of business. Um, so, you know, it's funny. Um, we're using the, world, the concept of war as a metaphor, but in point of fact, we know that it, it wasn't just a metaphor, that the, the set of techniques, the organizational methodologies that people like IBM and Kodak used were lifted directly from the set of techniques that won World War II. You know, the organizational approaches that were developed in the process of fighting and winning World War II were then applied across the entire social field. It was used to build the interstate highway system, it was used to build NASA, it was used to build IBM and Kodak. But but since then, we've had, you know, the Vietnam War, where the Viet North Vietnamese, uh, you know, used, you know, guerrilla warfare techniques and distributed uh, attacks. And, and they used, you know, they managed to get inside the American uh, decision loop. Uh, yeah. And, you know, they even though they were losing the last war, they won the current war. Yes, quite right. 
Yeah, so this notion um, of a decision loop, or, or as uh, the John Boyce, the American strategic theorist who came up with the concept, uh, the, the OODA loop, O-O-D-A loop, is, I think, a concept that is, going, is very timely, and I think more and more people are going to begin grasping it. So would it be useful to try to define it more rigorously right now? Absolutely. What does OODA stand for, for those who've never come across it? All right, so this is actually, as I mentioned, I think it's a very, very deep concept. And frankly, I think even the practitioners in the military who use it don't understand it well enough. So the idea is that you, the first O is observe. And we can think of observe as uh, uh, your capacity, which might be your organization or your team or your individual capacity, to pull information in from the universe. And by the way, your intuitive channel is part of, of that methodology. Uh, the more you're able to actually process things intuitively, the more bandwidth your O has. Um, the second O is orient. That's the idea is that just being overwhelmed by a flood of, of information is not helpful. You have to actually be able to take that and turn that from information into meaning. So orientation is your capacity to make sense of what's coming in. Uh, and so if we're going to be tuning into our, our, our intuitive channel, we have to get better and better at, at listening to it and using it as a guide to then be making decisions, which is the third, the D, decide. Uh, so decisions is taking sense and connecting sense to our action potentials. It's the bridge between what we perceive as being going on and how we are going to actually respond to it. Uh, deciding is the, is, the, is the narrowing function that then hands off to act. Uh, and the action piece, of course, is, is the, the agentic, the actuator, the, the refined ability that we have to express our energies into the world with the, the most impact, with the least effort, and with the least amount of externalization effects, the least sort of unanticipated consequences. So and the idea that Boyd has I, is the loop. So what's the loop? You, you um, observe, orientate, decide, act, and then you repeat it all over again? Right, because it's sort of reality or the universe outside of you comes in through observe and then exits through some kind of expression, some action or some change of behavior that you make in the world, which changes the state of the world, which then you observe. And, and interestingly enough, the, the common knowledge has it that the, the fastest OODA loop wins. Um, and this is actually not true. The, 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 the better understanding is that the, the OODA loop with the highest bandwidth wins, meaning that the one that can handle the most through it the fastest will win. Um, certain circumstances, having a very narrow band OODA loop very rapid is, is highly effective, but generally speaking, what you want to be able to do is be able to perceive, process, decide on, and act with the most potential uh, in the shortest amount of time. And at the same time, you want to slow down your opponent and cut their bandwidth. Ah, uh, yes. So then in, in the game of strategy, uh, if you are, in fact, interacting with other OODA loops, which we generally are, um, if you can do things to slow down or, or reduce the bandwidth of your opponent's OODA loop, then that's, a, that's a, the other side of the equation, right? So net-net, uh, the OODA loop with the highest bandwidth will, will win in any strategic context. Uh, and so either you can increase yours or decrease your opponent. So in business, you know, we're observing what our competitors are doing. We're observing what is shifting in the technology and organizational technology. 
We're decide, you know, we're orientating ourselves as to where we're going to focus. We're deciding what we're going to do. We're taking action, you know, changing a product, launching a new service, reorganizing our business a different way. And then we're repeating it and doing it over again. And then if we're a little devious, we're also trying to slow down our opponents or cutting down their bandwidth by cutting the amount of information they have available or or exploiting the fact that they just don't process information so quick because maybe they have a hierarchical structure and they, you know, only the top people in the organization do any of this and all the bottom people don't, whereas in our organization, everyone's empowered to observe, orientate and decide and act um, and take decisions and move the business forward and get feedback. And and that ability for the organization to to make decisions quickly and change and and maybe not have a coherent strategy, but like, you know, in Zappos shoes, you know, the customer service representatives are empowered to decide what's best for the customer, right? They don't have to take it up the hierarchy to find out what to do. You know, they have a faster ruler loop to decide what to do that. And then this is part of the, you know, the fact that the organization doesn't seem to have a consistent, you know, strategy, but they make fast decisions that are good for their customers could be confusing to the opposition because they don't quite know what they're doing, but they seem to be doing it better, right? That's a way to slow down their bandwidth because you're giving off so many different signals, they don't know what to focus on. So there's a couple of really interesting things that are implicit um, because you use the phrase uh, not having a coherent strategy. And what's funny, what's amazing about that is the degree to which we have, because we, you know, we grew up in the, in the latter half of the 20th century broadly, uh, we have mapped the word strategy to actually mean a strategic plan in the bureaucratic hierarchical mode, right? the kind of thing that a strategic planning organization creates, which is then disseminated. Uh, which point is, is, that, is how World War II was won, right? That's exactly. the strategy that all the big companies copied out of World War II, that you have a hierarchy, and, you have a strategy, you use operational research techniques to optimize your strategy, but the individual soldiers just follow what they're told to do. Right. And Boyd's point is that if you understand that OODA loop, the band, the engineering a higher bandwidth OODA loop is strategy. That actually is what strategy really is. And that the approach that you just described quite well is a, a an approach that optimized an OODA loop for the environment of the 1950s to the 19, late 1970s, 80s. Um, like that's the deep insight. Uh, and so now that we're not in the 1980s, using the techniques of the 1980s and fighting the last war, so the question is, what is in fact the nature, the essence of actual strategic thinking and planning that is appropriate for a networked age? And in my view, it's probably more distributed. It's probably people using, accessing their intuition as well as their rational mind. Yeah. Um, and probably some other things I haven't even considered yet. <laughs> Well, I mean, we could take a couple of, 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 of uh, things that are more legible, which is, for example, uh, you know, the changing nature of supply chain, uh, you know, the ability to do uh, logistics, outsource logistics, the ability to do um, very, very rapid experimental marketing through digital marketing and social media. Like, these are just very tactical handheld techniques that effectively everybody is familiar with. And what these do, what these changes in the, the economic framework have done in the past several decades is they've enabled and also forced a shrinking of the nature of what the firm looks like. So instead of having to have 
ownership of my logistical function to be able to ship from where I am to where my customer is, I can outsource my logistical function to, and actually at this point, almost a, almost a cloud logistical function. I don't even know who's shipping my stuff anymore. I just provide it to a shipping service who makes sure that it gets to the end, to the end customer at effectively uh, commodity cost. Um, I, I no longer have to have a, an IT, a giant IT department that builds out my, my hosting and, and uh, uh, bandwidth function. I just outsource that to Amazon Web Services or to Google, and they, and they optimize that. So what ends up happening is that my firm is empowered to shrink and become more and more focused on a smaller core competency, which then becomes a fluid component of a, of a, a different kind of marketplace. And if I don't do that, if I sort of hold on to competencies that are not my core, I'm actually radically less capable than everybody around me, which is to say that my OODA loop is very slow because now I'm doing things that are obsolete, you know, that Google has already fully optimized, and why the hell am I doing that? They've already done it perfectly. We just plug into that, what they're doing and take advantage of that. So you know, this notion that the organizational structure, as you said, like the way the Wehrmacht reorganized and pushed authority out to a different class of, of, of soldiers, which meant that the higher ranks also had a different way of doing planning. Um, you know, the new organizational structure is, is going to be oriented around smaller groups that have very intense core competencies that find ways to then ally with and link with other equally small groups who have intense core competencies and to actually share their, their energy and their resources in a very fluid and very rapidly changing global marketplace. And those teams may be fluid themselves. You know, it may be there's a team this month deal with a particular issue and succeed there, and then it disbands or reorganizes, and the people move to different teams. You know, it it there may not be a permanent structure. I, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm noticing I, that in my own company. Ah, well, cool. I mean, it, and and this is actually an idea that was used in I think it was um, Lockheed Martin in their Skunk Works, which. You know, they they wanted to come up with some new technology to sell to the army or the air force, and the traditional big hierarchical organization wasn't coming up with it. And they locked up these really clever engineers and gave them some budget, and um, and they came up with some really new technology because they were were separated from the rest of the organization. But I think that idea is going to in you know invade the whole organization. You know, we're going to have everything is going to be a skunk works everything will be creating amazing new inventions but doing it in a temporary way for whatever needs doing in the moment yeah i think that's right i think the you know the challenge for people who think organizationally is going to be figuring out where the efficient frontier is so it's it's unlikely that we'll be in a position where everybody has to be a stem cell meaning that everybody has to sort of carry the full portfolio of, of capacities and skills that doesn't seem likely to be efficient. Uh, there still needs to be division of labor and specialization, but it's certainly the case that the amount of division of labor and specialization is going to be a lot less than it was in the 1950s and 60s. And this notion of fluid recombinations of, of groups of individuals that cohere around some particular set of functions, optimized for it in a time frame where the optimization is valid, produce an artifact flow it into the marketplace and then maybe even disappear and reco here, more like the studio model, that's certainly being explored uh, quite rapidly. Um, and of course, you know, we're living in an environment that while it is changing very rapidly, there are, are also uh, sort of forces of viscosity. Companies like, say, Microsoft or Lockheed Martin, who because they control enough power, they have enough resources and enough influence over the environment, 
that they are trying to keep the niche. They're trying to keep the world uh, conducive to their way of being. That you have these very interesting dynamics between the rate at which the past is fading and the rate at which the future is emerging. And as a as an entrepreneur, being able to flow in there. You know, if, if your business is going to be interfacing with healthcare companies, like health insurance companies, that's going to be require a very unique dynamic of connecting what you and I are talking about with dinosaurs. Like how do you, how do you actually interface with dinosaurs when you're a mammal? Um, or conversely, do you just go ahead and decide to become a pure play mammal and just launch something like 23andMe or Fitbit that goes straight to the end user and completely routes around uh, the legacy the legacy infrastructure? And this maybe actually loops us all the way back to the, the initial conversation, which is the, you know, the situational assessment with the state of, of, of what's happening in the world right now. Well, and I want to recommend people read that um, because although it's written geared towards political talk, you can reread the whole article as applied to, to what's going on in business. Um, and there's, you know, just if we're OK swimming a little bit deeper in the swimming pool of ideas here into deeper water, I hope we haven't drowned too many listeners so far. And then I promise we'll come back to shallow water to, for some actions that would make sense. Um, is that OK with you, Jordan? Um, so I think one of the things I got from your situational assessment is that there is a world culture war going on. And, and I kind of label it, you know, world culture war two, a bit like World War Two. But the thing is, unlike World War Two, which, you know, in the 1940s, I think most people knew World War Two was actually going on. But just imagine you were an entrepreneur back then and you didn't even know there was a war and you had your factory or business and you were going along and you were wondering, well, why are my employees do, working so good? And. And why, why has suddenly half my factory disappeared? I didn't even know bombs existed, you know. Can you imagine how disruptive that would be for your business if you didn't even know the war was going on? And on the flip side, what an opportunity. Suppose you knew, oh, there is a war going on and I could retool the business to help out my country in whatever way that could happen. Or however you adjust to it. Maybe you decided, oh, I'm going to relocate my business to Latin America because I don't think that's going to be involved in the, this particular war. Um, many ways you could take it. But if you don't even know the world culture war is going on, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, well, if, if, you know, the, the example that just keeps coming home for me because I lived it was I didn't know that a global scale financial crisis was going on in 2007. Um, I, I, I was along the ride with virtually everybody else. And it was. And if I had known, obviously I would have been able to make vastly better decisions. Um, so, so this, the notion that we're currently immersed deeply in a, uh, a culture war, and I think it is a world culture war, and that it's very difficult to understand because it's not at all like the culture war of the 60s. Um, some of it is... is so the, the 60s were world culture war one in this terminology? Yes, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, yeah, in fact, it may even be... that There may actually be more than just a metaphor there. That may actually be a very close map. Um, the, the 60s and... Uh, 70s was World Culture War One, and you know to a greater or lesser extent, uh, certainly in the West, in Western Europe, the United States, uh, Japan, China, uh, the, the Middle East, sort of were a little bit shifted on that. And what was happening now is that the, the kind of the ripple effects of what happened in the West and what happened in the rest of the world are beginning to realign in what seems like a single World Culture War Two. Um, and what's happening is, is a number of different elements are aligning. So the, the if we think about culture, it's not just being stuff like 
uh, you know, this, the prosaic stuff like you know fashion or uh, the the ideas that are are having valence or politics. So we really think about culture as the the nature of of how we go about um, as individuals and groups making sense of the world, making sense of our identity, who we are, making sense of who we work with and how and why in terms of purpose, and then asking. Uh, you know, culture is a big piece of the framework of how we go about building our, our individual group OODA loops. And what's happening right now is that big waves are pushing through global cultures and they are disrupting uh, all of the old ways of doing this. And they are giving rise to entirely new ways of doing it. So it's very akin to a very rapid shift from a jungle to a desert. Um, and so what's happening is that the, the, there are surface artifacts, like for example, in the United States, we have the surface sense that there is some kind of uh, red Republican Trump thing that we may map to saying, oh, it's the Republicans that we remember from the 1980s um, versus the Democrats we remember from the 1980s. But that's actually not, I don't think, uh, what's really happening. What's really happening, I think, is that there's more profound transitions that are going on under the surface and that um, what I call the, the, the red religion or the insurgency, the Trump insurgency, have begun to form entirely new OODA loops, entirely new forms of collective intelligence that are more closely in alignment with the nature of the transformations that are going on below the surface, and in many ways only superficially resemble uh, the Republicans of the Reagan era. Uh, if you actually sort of just did a straight semantic mapping, mm, it's not particularly close. Um, they just are kind of wearing that clothing because that just happens to be where they're able to get above the surface, but they're pulling some other new kind of cultural coherence driven by a more adaptive response to what's going on underneath the surface. Um, and then so by contrast, this, this thing that I call uh, you know, the, the, the establishment and the blue church, which are related but not exactly the same, which the Democratic Party certainly is still closely connected with, they're fighting the last war. And this is one of the reasons why they're losing in spite of the fact that they have a huge amount of resources, that they're doing something which is in some sense swimming against the current of these big changes that are going on underneath the surface. And one of these big changes is technical. Right? The shift from television and newspaper to the Internet is a major shift, and the blue church is perfectly optimized for television and newspapers and is completely maladapted to social media. By contrast, the Red Religion, which is, again, not the uh, Republicans of, of the Reagan era, is in many ways the consequence of social media, more so than even adapted to it, is, is an expression of social media that has begun to grasp memes and co cohere those memes into, a, into what feels a little bit like something uh, like a narrative um, that is now beginning to outcompete the Blue Church in this new emergent environment. And, and this is somewhat analogous to the Vietnam War, where the American and South Vietnamese were fighting the last war. They had incredible, you know, superiority in numbers of bombs and tanks and what have you. Uh, and, you know, they had a, an organization based on the World War II kind of model that won World War II. But the North Vietnamese and the Viet Minh, they had a more nimble approach that had a faster OODA loop. And you know, they were able to totally destroy that, even though the establishment looked like they should have won. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's important to recognize, for example, 
uh, for anybody who wants to kind of get deeper into the actual history, the degree to which the, uh, the, the Viet Minh and the Viet Cong were able to play with and connect with uh, disruptive forces inside the American social cultural fabric, right, because that was degrading the OODA loop of the establishment, um, is, is also very much an important piece of the, of the story when you're, when you're playing that kind of game. So that cultural war is happening right now in America and in Western society, because it's not just in America. This is a symptom of the Brit-X and the other things going on in different countries. Right. Um, and, you know, if, if we don't understand this war is going on, it's entirely possible our business might get, you know, collateral damage from what's huh. happening. Yes. I would say with absolute certainty, the magnitude of this is way too large to not have collateral effects on all all businesses, certainly businesses above a certain order of magnitude and size. What's interesting is because this is so big, it will actually tend to affect really big companies like, say, Google, who otherwise would be largely unaffected because they're strong enough to kind of hold. Uh, even the biggest companies are going to be affected by this, which is one of the reasons why they're starting to get very nervous. I think this is something really important for people to grasp. Let's go back to the shallow end of the pool. What are some concrete actions you'd recommend people taking to take opportunity from this cultural war or to uh, protect their assets? Well, I mean, a lot of that, of course, depends on, on where you're positioned in the world. Um, what we can say for certain is a couple of things. Uh, the, the first is that people are going to be attending to these issues. So if your business is a business that relates to uh, individuals' uh, psychology, uh, their sense of safety, their sense of well-being, their sense of being empowered, um, you know, there's in some sense obvious opportunities that emerge there, some of which are going to be uh, sort of unfortunate abilities to exploit people, which I would recommend people avoid, um, but many of which are in fact going to be absolutely necessary uh, mechanisms to help people find ways to respond to what is absolutely going to be an increasingly chaotic and increasingly intensely distressful uh, environment. Um, things are going to make less and less sense and seem more and more dangerous over the next several years. And so if your business is something that can help people respond to that, and it can be anything, right? it can be yoga, it can be um, you know, personal development techniques, it can be ways to get people to interact with other people in physical lived space. It can be more effective pathways to personal nutrition, which makes the body more able to respond to its environment. Um, you know, a very large number of ways that, that, that you can tap into that. That's one set of vectors. Second, um, because we can say with some confidence that the macro environment is going to become more turbulent, so think of this like boiling water and turbulence, uh, being able to construct your business organization deeply around a fundamental ability to respond to increasingly rapid and unpredictable change will enable you to radically outcompete even vastly more well-resourced businesses that are slower to respond. So really being able to grok this idea of what it means to have a high bandwidth OODA loop, which has, for example, low dependencies. So having uh, a limited amount of commitment to cash flow. So if you have, for example, a choice between hiring a full-time staff or enabling it to, you know, connecting with some uh, studio model where you have some sort of expertise that can come in, but if you have to turn it off tomorrow, you can. The latter is a more rational choice than the former. Um, to the degree possible, 
allowing the ambient environment to give you very rapid feedback. So the, there's a premium in the contemporary environment to not being delusional. Uh, by that I mean, so for example, um, special forces, people who are day traders, uh, certain emergency physicians tend to be the kinds of people who are actually rather quite aware of what's going on right now because the business they're in, the lifestyle that they're in, requires them to, to not make a lot of shit up and believe their own nonsense. They just have to, because reality will very quickly tell them they were wrong. Being able to build in yourself a capacity to very rapidly be able to just test, experiment, allow reality to tell you what's happening and then respond to that as opposed to trying to create a, uh, a narrative that makes sense of reality, uh, which may in fact be a delusion, and distract you from reality instead of a deep core competency. Uh, so, for example, this might mean instead of investing in a, uh, a long-cycle marketing plan that is based upon a whole bunch of untested hypotheses that may, may take a year before you get any signal back, and the world, it may have been a perfectly valid plan by the time you launched it. By the time the signal comes back, the world may have changed. Focus on finding ways to do things at a very rapid iteration. You can get a very rapid feedback from the world to tell you where things are going in a certain direction and then respond to that and then iterate again quickly. Would, for example, be a way to be adapted to the contemporary environment. And a perfect example of that is the seven-day startup movement where you, know, you get the whole startup and get to a proof of concept with a prototype within seven days. Uh, in order to get yep. feedback as to whether you should modify it and continue it or whether you should scrap it and do something else. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I yeah, and, then, and you know, we can talk about all kinds of other ones. If you if you're in the if you're in a space where being a very effective, um, what the heck is this called? Like the the little fish that clean the teeth of the sharks, um, because of the big guys are not going to get shaken up like crazy. Um, and they're not going to be able to respond effectively internally because it requires a change in the nature of who they are, there will be a substantial amount of, of opportunity that opens up around facilitating uh, bigger guys. So B2B plays that help uh, large companies be more responsive to the contemporary environment, whether these are you know, old-fashioned consulting gigs or finding places where big companies are not doing a good job and tense you know, tool around that, uh, there will be opportunity there as well for as long as those companies survive and, and, and being positioned to actually eat market share that falls off of large companies that are becoming less and less adapted to the environment is sort of a fundamental strategy. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, Jordan. Um, I'm going to include the link to your article there. Is there any other way people can find you if they're interested in this stuff? Well, I mean, if, they're, if they're all interested, I actually have uh, co-founded a couple of companies. The one that I'm in the offices in right now is actually called the Neurohacker Collective. And frankly, it's premised on a lot of the ideas that we're talking about. That might be an interesting case study to see how I myself go about trying to execute on some of the ideas that I'm talking about. Fabulous. Well, good luck navigating all these changes in the culture wars and all those OODA loops and accessing your intuition as a way to get faster uh, on the decision-making in your loop. Um, and I'll look forward to seeing future situational assessments as all this unfolds. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you very much. Get strategies and show notes at intuitiveleadershipmastery.com. What would it take to see you here next time on the Intuitive Leadership Mastery Podcast?